Jewish Money Matters episode 369, Be Impactful and More with Rifki Itzkowitz, founder of Impact Fashion. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. I think that we get caught up a little bit too much in thinking about business practices as like, as as exactly that, as like yeah. this rules and business practices, when really I have a very simple life rule and it boils down to don't be a butthead. Yeah. And true, for yeah. the most part, if you are not a butthead, then the other things kind of fall into place. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because it's all about the relationships. It's the human side of business right. that is so missing so often. We miss that. We just miss it. We think it's And all by the way, that's your superpower as a small business. Yes. That, like you can have this relationship with your customers and with your clients that bigger companies just lose. And by the way, as I got bigger, it was something that I stressed about. How, how was I going to, you know, how, yeah, how, how was I going to maintain that feel? How was I going to, you know, maintain that connection? And there it's been touch and go, but for the most part, I think I've been able to, because you kind of keep this North star of how do I want to be treated and then right. do that and then treat people that way. Good motor right there, not just in business, but in life. This interview is fun, refreshing, wise. I mean, so many words I could use to describe my guest, Rifki Itzkowitz, founder of Impact Fashion, and our conversation today. I'm calling all budding entrepreneurs in the audience, those of you who are just starting or maybe thinking of starting your own venture. There's so much to learn from today's conversation. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. My guest today, as you heard, is fashion designer Rifki Itzkowitz. How did Rifki go from a girl who loved looking at designs on the runways and red carpets of the world to an entrepreneur? The shocking, unexpected realization she had as a wholesaler selling her designs to clothing stores catering to the modest Jewish consumer and how that led to a major pivot in her business. Rifki now designs and sells one of the very few, if not only, size-inclusive modest fashion lines in the market, in addition to being a voice of reason, support, and education around the topics of diet culture, body image, and weight sigmas, and of course, teaching you how to dress for your shape, not your size, something I have to admit I only learned through this conversation. We talk about pricing, time management, the social media monster, and more. Commonsensical, no-nonsense business advice, well, life advice. Take notes, y'all, from the delightful and hilarious Rifki Itzkowitz. Rifki Itzkowitz, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. This is going to be really fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to us diving into your business. Rifki, I am like literally so intrigued about this business journey. You are the owner of Impact Fashion. You've been at this for a quite a number of years already. I just heard offline that it predates your marriage. So I want to hear all about that journey. Um, you're also a podcast host. You've done a terrific job of, you know, bringing the, bringing yourself in out there with this, this voice of, I'm here to put out this beautiful fashion, this beautiful modest wear for women, um, inclusive of all sizes. And it had to do with a frustration that you had 
also, which you'll tell us about, but more than just putting out a, 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 a line, a clothing line, it, it's establishing a brand, right? Creating a podcast, a blog, a, a whole persona and, and, and lifestyle around this and, and, and becoming an authority in, 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 in the female voices in the Jewish observant world. So let's start way at the beginning, Rifki, um, because I heard you were, Passionate about fashion from a very young age, uh, and you were looking at the wrong way, the red carpets, even though it wasn't your lifestyle, and you just had that bug, and you learn, you started learning the craft very early on. Now, it it's, it takes a while. Not everybody who learns such a craft decides to become an entrepreneur. So, when did it happen that Rifki, who loved fashion, who knew how to sew, that she decided? but I am going to build a business around this. That is such an interesting question because I think that a lot of people, especially now, it's very like a, it's very popular to take something that you're passionate about and like turn it into a side hustle and then turn that into a business. And mm-hmm. my journey was actually very different. First of all, this was before like that was, I don't know, like popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, I've always loved fashion. I, I don't remember a time before I loved clothes. And I was always interested in how clothes were made. I started sewing when I was 10. My grandmother taught me and I, you know, picked it up on and off throughout the years. But starting by about eighth grade, did it pretty consistently through high school. And I took classes and I was really just pursuing it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, just something that I really liked and that I wanted to get good at. And I wanted to make my own clothes. And especially because as someone who was looking into the fashion world, as someone who does dress modestly, I was always kind of an outsider looking in. I was always kind of looking at red carpets and looking at runways and seeing what they were doing and then thinking, okay, but how do we put a shell under that without actually needing to put a shell under that? You know, that Mm -hmm. kind of way Mm -hmm. of thinking. And for me, what ended up happening was that as I got more and more came to fashion, like especially because I was always looking at like red carpets and runways and everything, I felt like an outsider looking in because of my modesty practices. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I've been, I've been dressing this way my whole life. I grew up this way. And so for me, it was always, I was always the, the train of thought was like, well, how do we make this, you know, look like it has a shell without having a shell, right? How do we make yeah. this like designed kind of from the scratch as something that is, um, you know, that is sneeze, that is modest, that is covered and all of that. And at some point when I was probably like around like ninth or 10th grade, I was like, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I want to be in fashion. That's just, I just knew. I was like, I'm going to be in fashion. At one point, I actually thought that I would work like in costuming, like in Broadway and theater and stuff like that. I have no idea how one would go about doing that. I still think it would be a cool career to have. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I, I was just knew that I wanted to be involved in clothes some way. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of things happened. When I was uh, in my year in seminary in Israel, I um, got connected with someone who was doing a gown rental business out of her apartment. And when I say apartment, it was so small. <laughs> you know, exactly. One of these tiny Jerusalem shoebox apartments. Um, she actually had like rafters in the apartment and she had the dresses in the rafters. And so she, and she had like a, an album of the dresses. And when her customers would come, she would tell them like, Oh, which one do you want to see? And then she would get on a ladder Before and pull, I pull it out them of the all ceiling. Down. <laughs> Literally. It was fantastic. And the way that she ran her business was actually very interesting. It was this custom rental model. So you could choose to make something custom and then she would make it for you from scratch, or you could rent some of the dresses that that she had previously made. So even if she was making a custom for you, you were still renting it. And then mm-hmm. she would have those dresses that would be kind of like off the rack options. And I thought that was just a really interesting model. Um, mm-hmm. I basically apprenticed with her through mm-hmm. my whole year in Israel. Um, and 
that was where I really learned how to conduct a client fitting and how to, um, you know, how to interact with a customer and, and everything that goes in there. And then I came home and I was going to college. Now I was going to college because, um, I have two Jewish parents and you are going to college, whether you like it or not. That's basically <laughs> why I went. Um, I did not want to be there. I was not given a choice. <laughs> right. No, I went to college because you're getting your degree. That's like, and my parents were even like, we don't care what the degree is in, but you are getting a degree. I am the proud owner of a bachelor's in family and consumer sciences with a concentration in textiles and apparel, go hire someone based on that. Like I have the most useless degree ever. Um, and also, and what, what, what happens as well was that I had actually, when I was in high school, I had applied for a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this program called the Macaulay Honors Program. That's a program through the CUNY system here in New York. And so I was in Queens College on this full scholarship. And that also gave me zero legs to stand on when I wanted to drop out of college, because if I would have dropped out, I would have lost the, fir- the full scholarship. And like, I just remember my mom being like, are you out of your mind? It's like, do whatever you want. It's like, college is not really full-time when it's, when they say it's full-time, it's like 12 credits, which is three classes. I had to do it over the four years because that was part of the requirements of the scholarship. She's like, do whatever you want to do on the side, but twice a week, you're walking to Queens College, which is, mind you, three blocks away from where my parents are, and you're getting that degree. So that's what ended up happening. And one of the requirements of my scholarship was that I do an internship. And another one of the things that they made available to you through this scholarship was the ability to kind of take classes. If you had an interest that could not be served in the school that you were in, they would fund classes elsewhere. So at the same time that I was taking classes in FIT and really honing, that was when I got super great at pattern making, you know, fashion design, I was always pretty good at, but like pattern making, design rules, construction, that was where I, you know, learned all the couture techniques and everything that I did kind of side by side. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also as a requirement of the scholarship, I did an internship. And so I got an internship with this company, Naeem Khan, um, which is uh, an Indian. He he is an Indian man who has a label based in New York. That experience Mm -hmm. was fantastic. I cannot overstate how pivotal that internship was. And it was pivotal in a lot of different ways. First of all, to get to see how a brand operates, how a label of that size um, works, just to be around those clothes, which are just gorgeous. Everything about that was amazing. And also I became friendly with my coworkers, you know, what, with, was, what with, was the name? What was the name? again? The name is Naeem Khan. It's spelled N-A-E-E-M and then last name Khan, K-H-A-N. Um, he's an Indian man who does beautiful, beautiful designs. And when I was there, I had first of all, the the best possible experience that you could have in a fashion internship. I had heard a lot of horror stories from the other interns, like when they had been at other places and treated very poorly and inappropriately and, and everything that goes on there. And I also took a really good look at the lifestyles that the people working there had. Mm. Um, and it was just not something that appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Like there was just a lot of like after work drinking, everybody there was a smoker. And that's, and that's not to say that these were not wonderful people. They were, I learned a ton from them. I really enjoyed my time there, but I just kind of knew instinctively that this was not going to work with the kind of life that I wanted to have. And then at the time, what I had been doing previously. So while I was in college against my will, um, <laughs> I started a, I started that same gown business that I had seen in Israel in like running it out of my parents' house. Wait, 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 wait. I skipped that part. Sorry. No, 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 no. What I want (laughs) to say here is you're so busy. You're taking these credits. You're also going to FIT, which by the way, they're, they're, you're not, they're not charging you. This is like, no, well, they, well, they were charging me, but, but then my scholarship was covering it. It's so I was like, okay, so you're doing FIT, you're doing the internship and you start the thing also. You start the, so, 
so I didn't do all of those at the same time. I don't want to okay. take credit for a busier schedule than I actually had. It was busy, but it wasn't that busy. <laughs> so the FIT classes were only one class a week. So I was going to the city like once a week. They had this um like professional development program and you couldn't you couldn't like pretend like you were actually a fashion student at FIT and do this. Like they kind of designed it so that you had so that you couldn't do that. They didn't want people kind of back arming their way into their program, which I guess makes a certain amount makes of sense. sense. Uh-huh. And um and my my full-time college Here's what people like don't full-time college is 12 credits. 12 credits is four classes. I grew up on a base Yaakov double curriculum. That's like the more like Chumish, Navi, Parsha, you know, Dikduk, done. Like, and, and then I was doing like all of that as a kid and also like math, science, social studies. Like I, the, I did not find the college workload to be difficult. Overwhelming, right? Right. I was also not taking very difficult classes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did not find. That I was in a lot of classes. I've heard that it's better now. So I don't want to, I don't want to speak to the program now, but at the time when I was in the textiles and apparel program at Queens college, there were literally professors who were sending other students to me during the class because I knew more about how to sew together, like some problem that the student was encountering more than the professor did. So, um, and again, I'm told that that's not how it is now. I, I, I don't know. I graduated a long time ago. Um, but the college was really not a big deal for me. It was not a big deal. It was not difficult. It was not whatever. I just had to like get my tochas to class when I needed to and not when yeah. I didn't. Um, the best way to illustrate my college experience. So you rent textbooks, right? After my first semester, I returned the textbook in the same box that it came in, <laughs> having not ever opened it. Like having, like I just slapped the label on and shipped it back. Oh. And then I was like, I don't think I'm going to rent textbooks anymore because these don't really seem to be making a difference. So um, and that was the only time that I ever rented a textbook. So I did not take college very seriously. And I, you know, skated through, like I really sailed through, like I had a very good GPA in the three point, whatever's how, however it works and all that. Um, it just wasn't important to what I wanted to do. Uh, right. When I got back from seminary, I started that, uh, the same kind of model of those custom rental gowns working mm-hmm. out of my parents' house. So I was sewing the gowns, renting them, like designing them basically with whoever that first customer was, uh, renting them to that first customer. And then I would, the, the plan was that I would initially rent them out, um, afterwards. Uh, that didn't end up really working out because what happened was, was that at the same time I was doing alterations kind of like as part of the same business. Right. And the alterations business was just much more popular than the gown business. People really okay. needed it. Queens is not really a destination for gowns so much. We have a couple of gamaks, but the people here, <laughs> I know, right? Shocking. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to Queens. Like, Queens shops. Right. We had like a couple of places here, but for the most part, like even when Queens people are making some, because they're going to like they're going to Brooklyn, they're going to the five towns. They're not really thinking of someone local. Um, so that business didn't like the alterations business was really what took off. And during that alterations business, you know how like you know something, but then something happens and then you know it. So yes. I was making the same alterations over and over again. We're letting mm-hmm. down the hems, we're building up the necklines, we're lengthening linings, we're adding in she- like we're we're filling in sheerness. Like I was doing all the same things over and over again. And this was in like 2015, 2016. So this is like right when we're starting to see a lot of modest brands start up. And I was kind of just looking around and being like, we're making all these alterations to dresses. Why don't we just make dresses that are good to begin with? Like why right. why is nobody designing these things? to begin with. Um, and again, this was like just right at the beginning where there were a couple of brands, not nearly as many as there are today. Um, and, and people were starting to think along those lines. And so I decided in 2016, this was after I had done my internship. 
mm-hmm. that I would go that I would that I would see if I could make a wholesale line. Um, a couple of things happened in the summer prior. I had gotten actually a lot of down business over that summer and it was great. And it was like, it was great. And that like the business was fantastic. The dresses were beautiful with like all of these handmade details and pleating and just like gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. But I also have not had a less healthy summer. I think since I was Mm. not sleeping, I was not eating just like the amount of hours that goes into making one of these dresses. It was insane. And and I just, and I basically realized that I was, I was at a pivot point. I could either start hiring seamstresses and kind of develop production to develop this gown business and this alteration business, or I could kind of pivot, outsource the manufacturing and then, and, and be, and be more of a designer as opposed mm-hmm. to a seamstress. And I thought about it and decided to go the designer route. Um, and so I made that first collection. I designed five dresses. I took them around to all of the stores that I could think of. Um, basically, if you were, if you owned a clothing store in 2016 and you were within driving distance of New York, you got a visit <laughs> or a phone call. Like I literally, I knocked on every single door, showed people the collection and started out as a wholesale only line. Um, I figured that was just the easiest way to distribute it. I didn't really know how to, like, I, like we were saying before, I didn't really know how to build a brand and how to, um, and and how to just get the word out to the masses. And I also just kind of figured that it was easier. Like, mm-hmm. go to the, you know, you go to the store, you sell them the piece, they, you know, they let you know what does and doesn't work and they place their orders and then you ship it to them. Like it didn't, it seemed just logistically a lot simpler. And in a lot of ways I, it is. I, I love simpler. it. I love it because it's here, you know, it's, it, let me, let me work. Let me give you what you need, right? Exactly. When you go to that brand, that, that store owner, she knows what her customers are looking for. And if you right. can deliver on that, then uh, we're in business. Right. Exactly. And that was pretty much how it worked for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2016, I started developing my first collection. I think the first collection that I sold was the beginning of 2017. Um, no, you weren't sewing these. You designed, no. the, you sold the samples maybe. No, I didn't sew the samples. So the way that it works in manufacturing is that most factories, I produce everything here in New York. That's really Mm -hmm. important to me um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of ethical reasons and also um, just for quality control reasons. I live in New York. When I'm in production, I'm in that factory twice a week, Um, you know, just making sure that everything is is how it needs to be. And for what most factories, uh, especially the New York ones, will not do a production run before they do a sample because they need to know how long it takes them so that they can price you accordingly. Right. So, um, so what I was doing was that I was doing the patterns and I still do it this way, you know, to this day. I make the patterns. I do what's called a muslin, which is basically a rough draft of the design mm-hmm. out of a material called muslin, which is like right. a very thin canvas. And what's great about muslin is that it's really easy to sew. It's really easy to cut and you can write on it. So mm, you can yes. make any changes that you need right there. If anyone's, I see you're nodding. Like, Fun. If yeah, ever I know a, it. I'm yeah, if everyone, if anyone's ever been in a fitting, then you've probably come across muslin. And then I take the muslin with the pattern to the factory. They make the sample up in the, in whatever the fabric is. Um, and then we see if there's any changes. Sometimes there are things that change between muslin and the actual fabric, make any changes that have to happen and then go into production from there. So at this point I had manufacturing lined up um, and I had kind of gone through the process of making these samples with a different factory than I use now, um, but with a factory and then showed those around to the stores. And that was working pretty well until I added more sizes to my line mm. because uh, when I first started, I keep forgetting if I, if when I first started, I went two through 14 or two through 16. I want to say that it was 16, but I'm honestly not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that and that was kind of standard for the time it was like maybe it was maybe a little like maybe most lines did like two through 12 and i was 14 or 16 like it it was it was within the realm of regular and then a couple of years in there's a store in Passaic called Pink Orchid run by a wonderful woman named Lara Shulman. And she had one of my, she had, she always carried my collection. She always had a couple of my styles and she had one style in particular that was doing really well. And she called me up and she's like, hi, I would like to order more of this dress to bring it in. And I said, great, no problem. Um, I actually remember it was a fabric that I didn't have that much of left. I said, let me just be in touch. Like, let me just find out exactly how much fabric I have left so that I can tell you how much you can order and we'll take it from there. And so I got the numbers. I, I called her back. I told her how many she could order. I don't remember what the number was. And she, and, and she says, and I can do any size I want. And I was like, yeah, do whatever. Tell me what sizes do you want? And she goes, okay, great. I would like 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, and 24. And I got really quiet because like literally until this moment, it had nobody not had occurred asked. to me and nobody had right. asked. It had not occurred to me at the time I was wearing like an 810 and it just wasn't, it, it just totally was not on my radar. And I said to her, I was like, I said, okay, I can make those sizes for you. Like in my head, I'm thinking, can I make those sizes for her? I think I can make, I, I can make these sizes, right? Like how hard could it be? I said, I can, I can have those sizes made for you. Do you have, do you have an audience for this? Do you have someone who mm-hmm. needs this? And she was like, oh yeah. Like there's nothing for these women. And she, and she's like, not only do I know that I'll be able to sell these styles, I have specific people in mind that once you get these dresses to me, I will call them. They will come. They will buy them. And I said, Oh, okay, great. You know, like I worked out the math. I did remember like charging her an extra patterning fee because I did have to make a new pattern for those bigger sizes. And that was it. I made the dresses. I shipped them off. Two weeks later, I called her back after they shipped. Mm-hmm. Hi, just curious. Whatever happened with those dresses? And she, she goes, Oh, they're gone. They were gone like two days after you brought them in. She's like, do you have more? Can I get more? Oh, I sure can. <laughs> and I, well, I couldn't have that dress because I didn't have any more of the fabric, but I was like, let me see what I could do. And I ended up doing something with a different fabric or whatever. And, and I just, and that was when the light bulb went off. I was like, nobody's doing anything for these women. Nobody has no, nobody has anything. And I started asking around. I started kind of, I started kind of, first of all, looking around at the other brands that were in the market at the time. And I knew that I knew that modest brands tend to run small because I knew for myself, even shopping as a kid, I like as a kid, I wore like a ladies 10, 12 or so, and I could barely fit into like the extra, extra larges. So I knew that fact, but it wasn't until that point that it connected where, hold on, if I wear a 10, 12 and I'm squeezing into the extra, extra larges, what is someone who wears an extra, extra large in a department store doing? Like, where are they going? There just is that piece of clothing doesn't exist. And the more I looked into it, the more it became apparent that this needed to, that this needed to exist, that there needed to be more, um, like plus size and inclusive modest clothing. So at that time I was still a wholesale brand and I just added the sizes to my line. I added the sizes to my line. I made it available for the stores to offer, uh, you know, for the stores to purchase and the reactions were split like, not, I wouldn't say 50 50, but there were only two types of reactions. It was either, wow, this is amazing. I'm so thrilled to be able to finally offer something to these women. I'm so excited that there's finally something for them. Right. That was one reaction. Or it was those types of people don't shop at my store. <gasps> and I'm thinking, well, yeah, I know why with that right. attitude, you know? Um, so they were kind of, there were these two camps and for the people who ordered, there was the also- two camps are saying the same thing, by the way. There's a void in the market. 
Like when right. I hear those two cams, they're both saying the same thing. There's a void mm-hmm. in the market. Right. I'm but so the happy you're addressing it. The difference There's is who a void wants in the market. I'm totally not interested in addressing it. I've right. never exactly. even looked at it. Exactly. So the difference is who wants to be helpful. And then also you're talking head on about fat phobia, about stigma, about bias. You're talking about right. like all the things about how we don't like to talk. We don't like to pretend that people above a certain size exist. We certainly don't want to pretend like those people can look fashionable or look good. Like if you do happen to be above that size, then it is your duty to become smaller so that thou shalt be stylish. You know, it's not like it, it was also starting to address. Yeah, you like, can earn the right to shop at my store. Ex- so that you can earn the right to be clothed. Mm. And how sad is that? So what happened was there was a couple of things that, that, you know, were all kind of swirling around. But what happened was, was that I added these sizes. The stores that loved them, loved them. Of the stores that loved them, I needed like one little bit of effort from them. And I said to them, I need you to put in your weekly ad that you're taking out in your local paper anyways, now carrying Simcha wear up to size 24. At the time, I was only doing Simcha pieces. I was only doing party dresses. And I said, I need you to do that. That's what, You add that one line to your ad, you. magic will happen. And the ones who listened did, and the ones who didn't, didn't, because we also had a negative feedback loop happening the same way that there had been, because there had been so few options for so long, women above a certain size stopped shopping in the Jewish stores, because why would I? It's a waste of time. There's nothing there for me. So unless the store was proactive about letting people know that that size existed, those people weren't coming in and those sizes weren't selling. So that was happening. So it's like we had to re-educate consumers. Exactly. That's just to let this is know. available. Yeah. Right. This exists right. exactly. now. It, exactly. it didn't exist for the last 20 years, but it exists now. Exactly. So, so anybody who did that was successful. Anybody who did that was successful. Um, but there were plenty who didn't and, and they weren't able to move it in their stores. And then on top of that, I started becoming known as a plus size brand, even though I was, I've always started at a size two. And at the time I was doing two, two, two through 24. And now online I do two through 28. Mm-hmm. Um, I started becoming known as a plus size brand. Because you were so, the one delivering on that. At the time, I was like one of like two or three. I think that this was like around when D-Rama was starting, but she, was, she wasn't she was really wholesaling. Um, but yes, I was one of the very few brands that was that was doing it. And stores that had previously only been ordering small sizes from me were nervous to order those small sizes because they didn't want a situation. They're like, someone who wears a size two is going to see someone wearing a size 22 in the same dress and the size two is going to feel terrible. Oh, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Literally every single person that I say this, a a woman who wears a size two does not want to be seen in the same dress as someone who wears a size 22. Oh my gosh. Right. And literally every time I say this to anybody, they're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Cause it is the dumbest thing you've ever heard. It's also possible that there's some selection bias there that people don't want to tell me that they agree, but that's fine. But either way, it's, um, yeah, it's, okay. it's it, like that. Well, it's, it, it boils down to the stigma. The stigma yeah, was yeah. there. I and see so once I started carrying the larger sizes, who were the women who really needed my help? Like those women really needed clothes. Then the, the sales on the smaller sizes and wholesale started to suffer. So what happened was I was getting such great feedback on the styles, on the fit, because I had such a strong technical background in how um, in how clothing are made and designed and construction and engineered, even in the smaller sizes, my stuff always has fit better than everybody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even feel like I don't even feel haughty saying that. It's just no. true. The fit has always been, first of all, my number one priority and also just really, really good. And the 
the, the ability to of that, carry that forward. Exactly. Because right. of that, I was able to carry it in, you know, into a more inclusive size range. And as that happened, I was just, I was just kept hitting these same roadblocks and wholesale. Like I was really just dealing mostly with the stigma of the store owners. And I mm-hmm. want to pause here for a moment and just say, I get it. Like they've been doing something one way for 30 years and it's been working. Why should they change? And a lot of those stores that I had problems with are still open and successful and and doing well and they're entitled to do well however they want to do well but it wasn't working for my business I, so can i just, pause for a second before we go dive into yeah, sure. stigma and where that took you because i want to highlight a few things up till now for everybody listening because up until now you're in business now i know you're going to tell me how you changed the business model but you're in business and a few things cannot be overlooked here the fact that you showed up and show them what you could do. And here, let sample it. Tell me. And what do you want more of? And what do you want less of? Oh, you want it with longer hem? You want like tighter here? Okay, I'll make it for you, right? The fact that you develop relationships, the fact that you went out yourself and found those factories, like these things didn't just like, I'm assuming they didn't just land on your lap. And oh, neither did those customers, right? You knocked on all those doors and you cultivated these relationships to the extent that you could even tell them, by the way, if you tweak the marketing a little bit here, you know, we're going to both do much better. Like there's so much here to unpack for anybody who's starting. These are like really fundamental practices in business that sometimes we just don't get it. And we're like, no, it's too hard. No, I can't do it. No, I, I, I don't, it's going to be too expensive. The factory's going to charge me to like, we just, you wouldn't have figured out, by the way, this void in the market. If you hadn't been already in action, that's also part of this story. If you had been sitting at home, not having made a sample, not having worked with a factory, not having convinced the store to take your, your, your line, this wouldn't have happened. All of these breadcrumbs come because you're already serving in the world. And I think it's I'm going to tell you a great, a great yeah. thing that I heard because I think you'll really appreciate it. Um, you know, like there's this dichotomy in business, like how much is, is hard work and how much is luck? Personally, I don't believe in luck. Nothing happens unless Hashem wants it to happen. Of and I'm course. not a very touchy feely kind of person. Um, But it has happened too many times that I have been like down to the last penny and then the right order comes in that, you know, for me to see it as any other way. Yeah. And this this idea like this uh, push and pull between like bitachon and hishtadlis, between our faith and our work that we do. I once heard the, I wish I could remember who I heard it from, but I don't. And it was basically Hashem can do miracles. We mm-hmm. know miracles happen every single day. The fact that we are alive is a miracle, but it's not really his style. It's not really like his MO. It's not really how he operates. Right. So you need to show up and do your work so that the miracles can happen. Cause like we all got to maintain the ruse. We all got to maintain, you know, uh, I, I think when you were on my show, you used the word the alibi, right? The alibi. Like, I was about to say it. Right. The <laughs> alibi. We have to maintain the alibi that, you know, my hard work is is making this happen. But I know that it doesn't happen. You know, you, you, you have to, like you said, you have to put in the work. You have to put in the hours. And when you put in the hours, then God puts in his miracles. Um, And that's been very helpful uh, for me when it comes to, you know, to all of this. Also, I think that just like if anybody wants to work on their bitachon, open a business because there's yeah. literally oh, there's yeah. literally nothing else that will make you just see how if you work I, I know too many people who work really really hard and are unsuccessful and i for a time was working really really hard and not seeing the level of success that i wanted and that's really hard to be in that place but 
it comes together and it comes together in the right time for the right people. Um, yeah. And that has been that, you know, that that has been really eye opening to see. And one of those times for me was January of 2020 pre COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my grandfather was dying at the time. Uh, he had a brain tumor and he died at the end of February of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I was very involved with his care. Um, and, we, and the way that the wholesale calendar works is that there's basically four months a year when you're doing all of your business. There's two, there's two fashion cycles before, you know, for Sukkot and for Pesach. Um, the two months after Sukkot, you're selling everything for Pesach. The two months after Pesach, you're selling everything for the following Sukkot. That's basically how it works. So November, December, maybe bleeding a little bit into January is when you're making about half the sales that you're going to make for that year, selling it for Pesach. And during that time, my grandfather was, was very ill. Um, and I was, I was very involved in his care and in appointments, radiation, everything like that. Um, overworked, stressed, emotionally exhausted because of everything that was going on, um, does not even begin to describe my mental state at the time. And I was finishing up this buying cycle and running up against everything that we were just talking about and having like the same conversations and feeling like I was banging my head against the wall, trying to make these store owners understand that there was a need for this and they could fill it. And if they would, they would do very well. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, I had started kind of posting on Instagram a little bit, you know, kind of directly to consumers because I had opened a website with uh, occasionally it'll happen in wholesale where a store will want to return something. It's like switch it out for a different style. And I always made a little bit extra in production. So I had like a tiny bit of inventory. So about six months prior, I opened a website and started doing a little bit of posting to promote it. Um, and it was, it was starting to gain traction. There was, there, it was starting to have, things were starting to happen there. And at the time I was so exhausted from everything that was going on in my personal life. I was so sick of trying to convince store owners that this was something that people needed that I, I just remember saying, if the only way for me to have this business is to have this wholesale business, then I don't want this business. I don't want to be dependent on the stores. I can't like, they're not going to get it. They just don't get it. There's not enough of them who are willing to go on this journey with me that, that will make sense for this to work in the long run. I don't know if this website is going to work. I don't know if people are going to want to buy the type of clothes that I sell online but I think that's where I need to focus. So I decided in January of 2020 that that would be the last wholesale season that I would ever sell. Turned out that that was a really good call based on COVID because what happened was, remember in January of 20, China is already shut down. We're all, we're all laughing like, oh my God, can you believe they shut down a whole country? You know, crazy China. Um, and I remember those conversations, yeah. especially because like, I used to live there. So to us, you know, saying crazy China is like, you know, common parlance in our household. <laughs> right. Right. Like you, you know exactly how crazy it is. And I remember even at the, at the Shiva, I remember one of my uncles talking about, can you believe they shut down a whole city? Like you could only get away with that in a, in a place like Communist China, country. Where like, yeah, communism <laughs> and everything. Like I remember having those conversations. Um, my grandfather ended up passing away on February 29th of 2020. So it was like really just, 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 just before COVID. But in January of 20, China was shut down. The vast majority of modest brands produce in China. So they couldn't, their, their factories were shut down. They couldn't deliver. In February is when like around Purim time, that's around when you're going to start delivering. Nobody else could deliver because their factories had been shut down, but the stores here were not yet shut down because COVID was not a thing yet. Okay. So 
because I produce in New York, my collection was ready in February. I shipped it to the stores in February. They were dying to have my stuff because they didn't have anything new in store. Like they were, they, they really, really, really wanted to have, um, new merchandise. And my merchandise was the only merchandise that they had. Um, they got their stuff. They paid me. And then like three weeks later, shut down. Um, and. And that, and, and I had already decided about six weeks prior that that would be my last wholesale season. Wow. So it was this really, obviously it was a really strange time for everybody. Um, but like all that kind of went down. And at the time I was exclusively. And it just a, goes to show, by the way, it's all Hashem because you could totally. plan this. There's no yeah. way you can plan such a thing. Totally. And so what happened then was that at that time, like the site had been again, like, slowly slowly trickling everybody got used to shopping online which worked out great um everybody like the idea of buying something nice online was no longer so foreign because that was the only option and us and it gave me these couple of months to really completely change the brand because mm-hmm. at the time i was only doing simcha wear because i produce in new york my price point is higher and i felt like at that price point you People would only be willing to spend for that price point if it was like a, like something you would wear to a wedding, a party dress, that kind of thing. Right. Um, I've since proven that's not true. People will pay for quality no matter when they're wearing it. And I also knew that if I kind of revamped the collection, also like nobody was getting, nobody got dressed for a year. So this idea of like doing ca- more casual pieces definitely was, you know, definitely was interesting to me. I put the entire website on sale. I sold it at like 40 or 50% off. I nearly called it a liquidation sale because I was seriously considering just shutting the whole thing down because who knew what was going to happen. At the very last minute, decided not to. Ran that sale for like seven or eight, I don't know, ran it for however, till the end of time, basically. (laughs) And then in August of 20, was it 20? Yeah, it was was August of 20. We were definitely still in in like COVID, but it was like... We could still, I remember getting together with other models for a shoot. So it wasn't, it was like definitely probably like towards the end of that summer. Um, I launched the origami dress, which was a one size fits two through 24 adjustable dress. That was really the beginning of building off of this whole brand. Um, I also started my podcast during COVID. I had, I would like to say specifically, I had been working on the podcast pre COVID. <laughs> I had been working. Everybody started a podcast during COVID. Mine happened to have been like it, it launched in October. So it had been around for a little bit. And then COVID happened. A great thing that happened there was that guests who I previously maybe would not have been able to schedule with were available. Um, like there was, they just had more time on their hands. And also specifically mothers who had been home with their kids all day. I was doing a lot of interviews after bedtime. Right. And moms who were home with their kids all day were like so desperate for adult conversation (laughs) that it was it was like wait you want you want me to talk to you a real human who is is not saying mommy 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 every five seconds for an hour yes please so i was able to get some really great interviews going um yeah uh, i'm with you i started my podcast way before covid (laughs) right exactly but i'm sure it took off then right so like it had been around for a little bit. actually we can have a whole conversation about that but yeah it didn't yeah. take off then. It actually, it actually was a very hard time for my podcast. Which were you on Jewish Money Matters at that point still, or was it like? No, I you- switched to Jewish Money Matters after that. After that, um, it was. I don't know if it was a hard time. It was. I had been already podcasting since 2017, so I was three years in, and I had a very established brand and. 
the numbers went down dramatically because people were not driving. People were not in the gym exercising. And then also there was this influx of podcasts in the market. Right. And so, you know, all of that had, you know, kind of like made me rethink a lot of things, but it wasn't, it wasn't as easy, you know, because I was coming from another perspective. I was coming from, okay, three years in loyalty, whatever. And people were not, I will, I wasn't listening to podcasts because I was always home with my children. Right. So I knew my audience wasn't listening either. They, they can't, they're trapped. Where are you going to listen? We all listen. Right. We and talk. it's so funny because my experience was exactly the opposite. My podcast was only a couple months old, but I'm saying my experience as a, as a podcast listener was very different. Um, my, I was not a mom yet. And so because of that, I had all, like, I was going on these really long walks, like these two hour walks and I was listening to podcasts. So like my listening actually went way up during oh, that time, but right, yeah, it was, right, it was right. a very, it, it was a weird time for everyone. It was just weird. But anyway, so now you start weird. the podcast. This has given you time. You create the, the, the signature dress, which I, I don't know. I live under a rock riff key because I literally today was like, that origami dress would be so cute for my daughter. Like so cute. Yeah. Like where have I been? So I had it. Where, where have you? I don't know, y'all. Where have you been? I but no, it's <laughs> recording a podcast for seven years, people. Probably. <laughs> so what happened? The origami dress for me was really this like reset of the thesis statement of the brand. Right. I really leaned into inclusivity, but more than that, at that point, I had started having. I had at that point because more customers were finding me directly. I was having the conversations with the customers as opposed to having the conversations with the store owners. Right. So now you're really nurturing the relationship with the customer with no middle person here. Right. And aside from that, that meant that I was hearing firsthand the frustrations. Because let me tell you, people have a traumatic experience in a dressing room. They need to talk about it. And I hear (laughs) about these days. I hear about those experiences literally every day. Mm. And so I was starting to hear more kind of specifically Right. What people were coming up against. And I was hearing from a lot of people things like, I'm bigger now than I ever have been, uh-huh. but I feel fine. I feel great. My life oh. is good. I have, you know, I have fullness in my life. I just can't find clothes. I just can't get dressed. And there was this frustration, some of whom had dealt with eating disorders, most of whom had not almost all of whom had gone through some kind of body love journey. And the thing that they were, the thing that was keeping them from, I want to say living your best life, even though it sounds really cliche. So why not? Well, be cliche. Like the thing that was keeping them from really living that best life was just that there was just literally no clothes for them. No clothes. Like, like literally there were just no options. And, and that was be, that was happening because of stigma. There are reasons why it is difficult to produce in plus sizes. I stock a lot of sizes from an inventory management perspective it's annoying it's you know just if i have 12 i i now carry 14 sizes that mm-hmm. means that in order for me to have decent stock of each size it just takes more space i'm i'm operating out of a very small space things things like that pattern making wise design wise i have literally changed nothing about my process right literally i work with a grader who grades up the sizes um and who just like make sure that proportionally they work um but it is not more expensive than making my smaller sizes. There's this misconception that, that, um, that more there's fabric. more fabric, right. right? That there's more fabric in plus size dresses, which is technically true. There is more fabric in, uh, in a larger dress, obviously. However, 98% of the time, what you are actually just doing is minimizing the waste. 
Meaning mm-hmm. if a fabric, uh, most fabrics, uh, in production fabrics are like 58 to 62 inches wide. So right. you've got this space, a fabric that you need to fill. If I'm making a size small, then it'll take up, let's say this much. But if I'm making a size three X, it takes up more of it, but I'm just minute, but that piece that's left over, even when I'm making a small is too small to cut something else from it. So it's getting thrown out. So you have so to, from a cost perspective, really, that's not an obstacle you're saying. For the way that I produce, it is not. Now, I will mm-hmm. say this. I produce in New York, very high quality factories that cut individual pieces that do design or work. So it's, I don't know anything about producing in China. And I don't know if you, I don't know if they work their fabric differently. So I can't say that. But I can say that for me, mm-hmm. um, in the way that I produce my collection and the way that I cut each size individually, mm-hmm. um, cost-wise, it's, it's, it's really not there. Like so you're they, saying your, your fabric also is from New York? Not just your manufacturing. Also, so the fabric from New York? the fabrics um, are for the most part stocked domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that they all originate domestically. Right. Some of them are imports, but I'm not the one. But you buy them, them here, right? Okay. Like I'm buying them from fabric vendors, mm-hmm. um, and you know, m- most like probably a good like seventy percent of the fabric that I use is comes from a, like New Jersey just because mm-hmm. that's where the warehouses are. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it comes from LA, but but I'm I don't really import that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so now you're talking to the customer, you know, their pain point, you know what they're struggling with. And the thing that I realized was that the other thing was that a lot of people were saying things like, yeah, yeah, I really want to get one of your dresses, but I'll just do that when I lose 10 pounds. And, oh. and I was like, but, and I was like, yeah, your size would change, but what looks good on you really wouldn't. You know, it wouldn't really make that much of a difference because your body shape is much more important than your size. And then the first time that I said that out loud, someone was like, what are you talking about? That's my body so shape interesting. is what? what I also kind of stopped. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause we're not used to hearing this because we're so fixated on size, right? Small is good. Skinny is good. Thin is in. Like all of that is always good. However, your body shape is basically the proportion of how you carry weight on your frame. Um, so women have three main measurements, your bust, your waist, and your hip. And your body's shape is the relationship between those measurements. Uh-huh. So for the most part, with the there are there are two major exceptions and they are um uh surgery and menopause don't change your uh, with those two exceptions you cannot change your body shape meaning even if i were to lose 20 pounds my hips would still be my widest point because mm-hmm. that's just the way that i carry my weight mm-hmm. if i were to gain 20 pounds my hips would still be my widest point. and that proportion that balance between the main measurements on your body is what determines the types of clothes that look good on you. That's and I just fascinating. Yeah, people don't know this. Um, and again, as someone who's just always been obsessed with fashion and always got like always just loved clothes, this was just something that I, I just, just know. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Of course, like you have to pay attention to proportion. And so, what I realized was that so many people were so focused on being small that they didn't realize that even if they were to get small, that dress that they wanted to fit into might still not look so great on them because mm. it wasn't great for their shape. But if you know how to dress for your shape, then all of a sudden the doors are open and you can look fantastic at any size because we're just paying attention to our shape. So Love once it. I started kind of, you know, once I started just talking more about that, because I saw that people needed to know. Education. Um, <laughs> right. That was really when, um, that, that was really when Impact Fashion took off, you know, in the version that, that people know it today. So, so you, during this time you're doing, I, I have to, I, my brain is going to time. 
where's where is Krifke time finding the time for the creative part of her job, right? Which is the designing, coming up with the new fresh ideas, plus the business aspect of this and you know the technical piece. And then there's also the nurturing and establishing authority through podcast and the the website and you know the shipping and that's not that part of the that's more of the business but the Instagram and all that there's so many parts to this how is Rifki juggling because I, I hear from other entrepreneurs and there is a tension there especially when there's a creative side that needs to be also like you sometimes you just you just need to sit down and create right um so so how are we managing this at this point not well <laughs> <laughs> At that point, and this takes us now to like maybe two years ago, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Um, at that, yeah, I was overwhelmed. I was incredibly overwhelmed. There also, was let me ask you something else. Financially, there's always a transition. I mean, you could be comparing to how you were doing wholesale and now you're sort of starting from scratch, DTC, direct to consumer. Not sort of. You are absolutely, you're absolutely right. So you might also feel that pressure, right? You know, it's not like you replace that income right away. There's also that transition. Right. So yes, yes, this, these are all of these. Yes. This is all the things that keep me up. I'm describing your life at that moment. Take a 100%. Um, so I am very strongly of the opinion that you should not start a business if you need that business to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. I am very strongly in that opinion. I think mm-hmm. that you should that give yourself that it, financial no, runway. Exactly. Um, I am a big fan of people like not quitting their jobs, keeping yeah. your job. And even if it means keeping the business small and doing that, you know, kind of on the side, I'm a big fan of that. Um, the 10, the 10% my, entrepreneur. Did you ever read that book? I haven't, but I know the concept. Yeah, my, yeah. I, I, my colleague, Patrick McGinnis wrote that book. Yeah. Yeah, we used to work a, together. Mm-hmm. It's a great concept. And I think that we get, we get, listen, like, especially when it comes to entrepreneurs, you always hear about these people who like, I raised $10 million for my app and then we did an IPO and it was amazing. I was sleeping in my car and then right. I raised $4 million. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which is, um, irresponsible, even if it works <laughs> out. And, um, I am, I am inherently very risk averse and mm-hmm. I, and, And I have never had, I'm very fortunate to have never had a moment where my business needed to pay my bills. When I started my business, like you said, it predates my marriage. I started my business when I was single, living at home with absolutely zero expenses. I put every single dollar that I had at the time in and and saw where I could take it. And there were definitely touch and go moments there. And then um, when I got married, my husband's salary was enough to cover, you know, what we needed to live. What I made was always extra. Mm -hmm. And so- that was, you know, I knew that I could start from scratch because we like it w- we would be able to buy groceries no matter what happened with the business. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. that was always very important to me um, in terms of the time management part of it. I will say this time management in and of itself is my superpower. I'm really oh, good. at Really? It. Yeah, I am. I'm really good at it. I'm really good at at organizing things, at blocking out time, at getting like I do think that I have more hours in the day than most people um, just because I'm really, I'm, I am really good at this. This is just, I, I have systems. I'm just, I have a really good knack for how long things take and planning it out appropriately. Um, there is that um, for me at the time, that was not when I had the biggest struggle with the time because, you know, it was just me and my husband. I didn't, 
have like that many other responsibilities. He was also working and building his career. So like we were very goals aligned in that way. And I just, I just, I just worked till midnight every night. And then I would wake up at 9am the next morning and do it again. Like I just, I just worked a lot. I worked a lot and I did a lot. Um, for me, that whole aspect of like having the creative side and then also managing the business and also doing the marketing and everything that became much more difficult when I became a mom. Right. Because all of a sudden there is, you know, I, I did take a three month maternity leave, which was very important to me. And like, I planned for that throughout my pregnancy and, you know, I, and I was able to organize that. And that was mostly, um, you know, like basically I, cause like you, I don't consider posting a maternity leave. Like, you know, if I had, if I had the content prepped then like to just hit post was not a big deal. Um, for the two weeks immediately after I gave birth, my brother actually did the posting, um, which like nobody, nobody knew about it at the time. I didn't want to make any kind of announcement and it, and it worked really well. Um, what happened for me, that biggest change went, you know, when I did go back to work, um, the babysitter leaves when the babysitter leaves. Right. And the daycare pickup is when the daycare pickup is. And having that hard stop to my day was definitely very difficult. Mm. Um, not because I don't want to spend time with my family. I obviously do, but I also have responsibilities that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes ever is being an entrepreneur is great. You get to choose which 18 hours a day you work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which and like and I have never related to something more and but now I didn't have those 18 hours in the day anymore because yeah. you know there were other responsibilities there were other things that needed that needed my attention and that took me much longer to kind of find a harmony with um what I started doing like I said time management is my superpower and I'm a big fan of lists and I actually started I have daily to-do lists different tasks that have to get done and I started splitting them into I started taking the tasks that could be done after bedtime and putting them in a separate list. Mm-hmm. So if there's something that like could be done on my computer at home and that I didn't need to be in studio for, then I would push that till after bedtime. And that's pretty much what I do now. Like I am not reachable from five to 7 PM. That's not my time. That's family time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, like I'll do pickup, supper, play, bath, bedtime, you know, all of that around 7 PM is bedtime. And then you know, I'll eat supper, whatever from like, sometimes from like eight till about maybe 10 PM. This doesn't happen every night, but like in that chunk of time, I'll go back to work and Mm -hmm. I'll, and if there's something that needs to be taken care of, then, then I'll, then I'll take care of it. Then, um, I do a lot of podcast editing during that time, that kind of thing. Um, that's been how I've worked it. Um, when you, when you speak about the creative time, I cannot pattern for an hour. I need eight hours. I need to have a chunk of time where I can really get into that flow state and really get into the, into the pattern. Thank you. Thank you. I know. I need that. I I don't design clothing, but I need a chunk of time to write. I can't just like, and when people tell me, well, just write an hour a day. It doesn't really work like that. It doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't. Also, I can't really, I don't know if you have this also, but every time before I start patterning, I'm like a little bit lazy about it. Like Mm -hmm. I just, you know, like I'm just like, it takes though. It's like, it's like, I got, you got to get into it. It just, right. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, you gotta, you, you just have to get into it. Yeah. It's and like going so, to work out. Okay. When you start. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah. oh, yes. Yeah. Best analogy. Yes. Exactly. That is exactly what it's like. And so for me, like if I try to do it for an hour, then like I actually end up working for 10 minutes and that's not enough time to get anything done. And by the time I realized that, Oh, I would only have 10 minutes. I'm like, why even bother starting? So <laughs> what I started doing was blocking out full days, right? No meetings, that's no calls, no anything like don't I try to of course like every now and then it <laughs> I love to see those days, days in my calendar when right. you click on the iPhone all day 
All day. Well, all day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just patterning. Um, and so when I do that, then I'm able to, you know, th- th- then I'm able to really get into it. The other trick that I have, and this, this I think is so helpful for anyone who's in a creative space and also does like does social media type things. Mm-hmm. I am now, I am, I am most well known probably for sharing my design process from beginning to end on Instagram. The behind the uh, scenes. I love the that. behind the scenes and everything. And I do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's really cool. I think it's really cool. I love seeing how stuff gets made. I'm fascinated by these types of videos just in general. And I thought that people would like them and they do. They really do like them. Uh, number two, it's a great way for people to feel invested in the product. Yeah. Um, I made a decision not to launch collections, but to launch pieces at a time because I don't believe that you should ever have throwaway clothes. Each piece should be thoughtful. Um, and that's reflected in the way that I design collection and the way that I design, um, you know, that I release pieces. And so for me, I wanted people to have that same intentionality and feel that same level of investment with the way that something was being created. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's also just a really great way for people to get excited about something. Yeah, like for they, sure. You have something that they've seen being made from beginning to end, and now I can buy it and have it in my closet. Like that's just a really great thing to have. Um, and on a really practical level, the easiest content for me to create is work that I would be doing anyways. I'm patterning anyways. I just stick a phone on a tripod, put it on time lapse, and then I and then I do the editing afterwards. But um, it allows me to kind of double dip in that way also. And also it has these, you know, all these amazing other benefits as well. So that helped to make like, even when I'm just patterning, I'm also creating content, which helps as well, just in terms of, because I mean, the monster is never satisfied and it's an endless hole that always needs to be fed. <laughs> so that that also has been, has been really helpful. You've never heard that? No. I didn't come up with that. I've heard that just like thrown around. Social media is a, is a monster that's never satisfied. You just have to constantly throw at things Gosh, and then it so eats them funny. up and, and asks for more. That is so funny. That is so funny. You reminded me that um, my social media assistant is like, can you please make me a bunch of videos of you just being you and just sitting at your desk and doing what you do? I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. She's you like, buy a tripod. You stick your can, you stick your phone in it. Right here. There you go. You have your tripod, and then you just sit in front of your computer and you pretend like you're typing, and that's it. You need like she's thirty like, seconds of those. She's like, I need to see you do what you do behind the mic, writing your articles, talking to your students. I'm like, ew, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I don't know why I have such an aversion to it. And the I think it's also right because here. part like what I do is easy because. When I am doing what I'm doing, it is inherently interesting because I'm not, I mean, I spend right. a lot of time sitting in front of a computer, but like patterning is an interesting thing to watch. Right. Um, I don't, it, like writing does not look visually yeah. interesting when you yeah. do it. So I, that, I that also is a, a different level. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So I have a question here. Okay. Rifki. So now you have this business. A lot, I hear from a lot of people who are starting out. Again, you've started out twice effectively, right? Let's look at DTC now as we have it right now, direct to consumer pricing. Mm. People get stuck with this. Like, oh, people want a discount, but they say my thing is too expensive, but da 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 da. How did you, how did you, like, how did you work that? Obviously, I know how you work out pricing. It's cost based and all that, but I'm saying the, the fear, the, 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 the fear of dealing with the objection from the market, like, or, or, or positioning yourself at a place in the market that where maybe there might be resistance. Talk to us a little bit about that because you seem to I'm, be very comfortable there. I'm so glad that you asked this question because I was not always very comfortable here. Oh, okay. Let's um, hear. My 
my collection has always been more expensive than others on the market, mainly due to the fact that I produce in New York. Right. So my costs are just higher and therefore the collection needs to be higher. Now, I also view that as a responsibility. The clothes are better. They are objectively better, higher quality than anything else that you will get for a third of the price from any other modest brand. I, Mm -hmm. I will die on that hill. I promise you that that's true. And so what I found it, it, there was definitely a point where I was like, I, this is the price. Sorry. This is the price. Yeah. Do we want with it? Um, and I got past that because what, what happened was the price was what the price was. Mm-hmm. And when I saw what was started to happen in comment sections, yes. which was basically I would post something, let's say a dress with a 250, maybe $300 price tag. Someone, you know, smile forever. Three, seven, six, two would write like, how dare you have the audacity to charge this price? And I would kind of like, while I would be like reading, I I used to answer it. I used to be like, well, Um, my pieces are higher quality and they are this. Like I would objectively lay out all the reasons why my pieces were better. Sometimes that went over well, sometimes it didn't. But what started happening was that as I became more well-known and more people had the clothes, so more people were able to see with their own two eyes and feel on their bodies and just see with the way that the clothing laid just how objectively better it was. The next time that somebody would say, like, how dare you charge this price? My customers would, would would be like, no, but you don't understand. This is the best dress you'll ever own in your closet. Right. And so, and it, and it would turn into this. Sometimes it got a little ugly. I mm. didn't, you know, that's, I wasn't the one typing. It was other people who I did not ask to be there. I will say that, but it was be like people who were saying like, no, you don't understand. This is the best piece of clothing I've ever had in my closet. I feel amazing every time I worth it. She should be charging three times as much. Like literally those are the types of comments that I would be getting. So once that happened, I realized this is the right piece for the right person. This is the person for this exists. And that Mm -hmm. is not everybody. And I don't need to, not everybody can spend $250 on a dress. And that is absolutely within their right to not spend that. And I hope that those people enjoy just, you know, the body positive content or just enjoy watching the designs come together, even if it's not something that's in the cards for them to own. Mm -hmm. What I do find, though, Mm -hmm. or what I have found, I will say, most people, once they see the quality, you know, once they once they make that first purchase, they they're coming back. You know, my return customer rate is obscenely high. I think last time I checked, it was like 47% or something crazy like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good product speaks for itself. And it right. is absolutely worth what I'm charging. And the right people are there. And once I realized that, price became like a non-issue. It's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, how much does it cost? 250 Great. Next. Mm-hmm. And if, oh, that doesn't work for me. Okay. Sorry. Move on. Um, I did do two things. I did make... Um, I did um, Shopify launched the option to do split payments, which I have yes. mixed feelings about because I kind of feel like if you can't afford it in one payment, you shouldn't buy it. But I know I, that I not- saw that you offer it, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I always tell people I, don't get into don't don't do it. <laughs> I, I I kind of, but I will say this: there were there was actually up until that point, there had been I had two or three customers who I was doing that manually for. They mm-hmm. would tell me like, I'm setting aside this portion of my paycheck. Can I give it to you? And then like, you'll ship me the dress when I give you the other portion in two weeks. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And I was kind of doing it manually. And so I set this the up. Old and- school layaway. You're too young to remember, but I remember, I remember layaway. You remember sure. layaway with the index card at the store and yeah, then yeah, go yeah, and put yeah, there. all that. So I was doing kind of like my version of that. Um, and then just made it um, native to the site, which definitely people do take advantage of. And the, again, it's not, it's not my business to tell anybody what to do with their money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did do that. And the other thing is that I do not discount. 
I do one sale a year. It's in, it's in December. It's the choose your discount sale where there is a higher percentage and a lower percentage. If you choose to take the higher percentage, then your purchase is final sale. If you take the lower percentage, then you can return for store credit. Oh, this is brilliant. And I do it once a year. I do it once a year because the worst feeling in the world is buying something and then it goes on sale three weeks later. Right. And I, and my prices are what my prices are. My product is worth what my product is worth. I feel very strongly that if you're constantly discounting, you're just training your customers to wait for the sale. Right. Um, and I, I, and there's no point in that. Like I know so many brands who inflate their prices because they know that they're going to be selling so much of it on sale. And, mm-hmm. and I don't do that. This is the price. This is what it is. I do one sale a year and that's, you know, just like end of year kind of clear out a little bit. And by the way, by the time I get to that sale, there's not really that much left. Um, right. There's not, you know, it's, if you, nobody really chooses to shop the sale, it's kind of like the people who have the collection and love it, you know, see if there's another piece that they can add. Right. Um, so that's, that's where I fall on, on pricing. I really think that price is an indication of value. I was about mm-hmm. to use the word. Exactly. Yeah. Price is an indication of value. If you have a garment that you are going to wash three times and it will disintegrate into oblivion, you shouldn't be paying more than 30 bucks for it, right? Like that's not, the value is just not there. Mm -hmm. If you have a garment like the pieces in my collection, which I have literally owned for 10 plus years and which I have literally continued to wear and which I have customers who continue to wear for many, many years to many, many different occasions feeling just as fantastic the first time as the last time, then 250 is not even that crazy of a price, you know, okay. it, it, it really just boils down to what you're offering. And if your product is good, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to charge what it's worth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, amazing. No, I have to ask you though, because there's such an into, there's such a, um, what I'm hearing is such good big business practices from the beginning of the story till up, up until point, this point. Where, where, where is this coming from? Did you come from a family of entrepreneurs? It didn't sound to me like you did. Um, is this no, just I intuitively didn't. you picked it up? That's and very also sweet by of you do- to say. And also by doing, by taking action from early on, like we said. But yeah, you didn't. Co- did you come from business owners? Um. So no, like I didn't necessarily grow up so much around entrepreneurship. My grandmother, mm-hmm. actually the same grandmother who taught me how to sew, had a real estate company. Mm-hmm. Um, and she herself was very entrepreneurial, but I wouldn't say that like she specifically taught me anything. A lot of people say that I'm very similar to her, but that's right. like, that's like that. Like that, that, that's in the genes, you know, I think that we get caught up a little bit too much in thinking about business practices as like, as, as exactly that, as like yeah. this rules and business practices. When really I have a very simple life rule and it boils down to don't be a butthead. Yeah. And true, for yeah. the most part, if you are not a butthead, then the other things kind of fall into place. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because it's all about the relationships. It's the human side of business right. that is so missing so often. We miss that. We just miss it. We think it's, and all by the way, that's your superpower as a small business. Yes. That, like you can have this relationship with your customers and with your clients that bigger companies just lose. And by the way, as I got bigger, it was something that I stressed about. How, how was I going to, you know, how, yeah, how, how was I going to maintain that feel? How was I going to, you know, maintain that connection? And there it's been touch and go, but for the most part, I think I've been able to, because you kind of keep this North star of how do I want to be treated and then right. do that and then treat people that way. And right. that came into play actually a lot. I'm probably most well known for my return policy. It's 30 days free return shipping in both directions is covered in the US. The funniest part about that return policy is that people don't believe me when I say it because it's so unusual. 
that they're I like, no, 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 but where's the restocking fee? I'm like, no, I there know. is no restocking fee. I know, Are you because sure? every single modest brand has right. this. And, and they it's... have reasons for it. And there are absolutely reasons for it. In my product, with the way that it's priced, in my margin, I have room to accommodate this. And I mm-hmm. include it, by the way, in my costs that I use to calculate my price. You know, that there's something to be said there. But that to me also is just like, I'm not buying something online if I can't return it. I, I know. I, I, I just don't do I it. Don't do it. So, I, do, I don't do it, by the way. Right. Um, um, most people that I know don't or they will only do it if it's very very cheap which Mm -hmm. again just dictates the quality not only of the service but of the clothing right so for me it was very um like that just i don't buy something online if i don't return it i gotta make people able to return it so let me figure out how to make that happen and taking it from there those kinds of things but yeah don't be a butthead is a very good business idea yeah it's it's just simple motto right there (laughs) yeah it it gets you far in life i'll tell you that i think our sages say it a little little bit different like don't do unto others what you don't like well well, how does it go (laughs) listen the next the next time like a version of pirke evos comes out it should just be like pirke (laughs) rifki don't be a butthead Okay, so now that you mentioned, and we're so over time, but this conversation is so I good. got time. Let's chat. Um, I have to ask you something because now you mentioned, you know, super like a small business. And that's one of our strengths that we can connect to um, our audience and transitioning into, you know, becoming a bigger business, more revenue. Talk to me about financial goals, because I think this is a, often like something that also um, confuses people. I hear people a lot saying, well, why should I set financial goals if I'm not going to achieve them? They're going to frustrate me. Where do you stand on that, Rifki? Like, do you, do you like, do you look at your business and say, you know what? I have a milestone for this year that I want to generate this much in revenue. Like, where where do you, where do you fall in? in, And how do you feel about all that? I don't really think that way. Okay. Um, How do you think? I don't, I don't really think that way. Again, my business is, my family is not dependent on my business income which mm-hmm. makes a very big difference. Mm-hmm. And I highly recommend if that's possible. And if it's not possible, then get a nine to five. Don't do this if you need it to pay groceries. I think mm-hmm. I feel very strongly about that. Um, for me, it's really just about, I want to have, like my goal is always to be able to make another dress. That's my goal. Wow. You know, for a while I was working towards the goal of expanding the size collection, of expanding the size selection. And over the summer I was able to do that. I added sizes 26 and 28. Um, and there were some, there were some minor costs involved with doing it. Um, there were some marketing costs involved, there were, you know, and things like that. Um, but it was also, it was mostly logistical just in terms of where pieces mm-hmm. were going to go and, and, and all of that. Um, and I was able to do that, which was great. That was more so about building up a customer base than it was about hitting a specific money. Right. Number, though. Um, right. as long as I can make another dress and, you know, and keep doing it, I'm happy. Um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the uh, the best way to approach this. Pro- well, and the dress is selling, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's that. Um, yeah. That that's really the way that I um, that I think about it. I don't really have specific, um, you know, like financial goals or or things like that. Um, I did think I never thought that I would consider opening an in person store. It is something that's on my radar now, um, mm-hmm. just because. If something is asked enough times, then you'd be dumb enough. You know, it's funny you say that because I've immediately thought about it when you were talking about the, you were educating us about um, body shape versus body size. And you also talked about the horror stories that people have in a fitting room. Right. And I was like, this girl is so in tune with the real human struggle that she would be so, it would be so great to be with her in the space, not just to buy from her online. Um, right. So that. That yeah, I am not. Mind. Yeah, it's it's definitely something. I really thought that I that I would never 
like retail is dead. We're never going there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really thought that that would not be something that I would ever consider. That has changed over the last couple of years only because, well, well, uh, I was invited to join the address, um, which is a curated modest it? apartment store in American dream. And it's, Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, so I'm, I'm not operating it. I'm basically just supplying the clothes and you do have the opportunity to try on the clothes in person and everything like that. Um, and I do a pop-up tour. Um, uh, pre-holiday season where uh-huh. people do have the opportunity to, you know, like have that dressing room experience with me, which is, and those are super successful and that's really special to have and to do. Um, and right now I am not at a time in my life where I want to be operating a retail store. Um, right. But just it's nice with- to have that opportunity to at least those couple times a year have that customer experience. Right. I exactly. Love that. Exactly. So like for a couple of times, you know, twice a year, basically for like a week, week and a half, depending on how the schedule works out. um, I go on tour and I do the, you know, and I do the shopping and everything like that. And it's, it's really fun. um, And it's really great. And it does give people that opportunity to, you know, to, to really try on the clothes in person. Um, Right now, like I said, my family is just not at a point where I want to be opening and closing a store every day. It's just Mm -hmm. not what I want to do. And maybe that'll change in like, I don't know when I'm like in my forties, maybe, um, or maybe not, <laughs> maybe so sooner, <laughs> maybe sooner. I'm 29. I know I'm a baby. Um, oh my gosh. You're a baby. I'm a literal That's baby. Adorable. I, I love it. <laughs> um, I love it. So I, but I do kind of feel like, I, I don't know, like me, I think, I think that at some point there will be an impact fashion store. I don't know when that'll be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So that's exactly. uh, that's not really like a, a specific goal that I have right now, yeah. but it's just it's it's out there. And in the meantime, it's free shipping and free returns. So I tell everyone your your yeah. um, your bedroom yeah. is the dressing. Go. And in the meantime, I think you have enough touch points for people to fall in love with you because like you're so lovable. Like the minute like Aww. whether you whether we experience you those two times a year there in the fitting room or we experience you on the podcast, you know, like wow. <laughs> like we love we love you. I, I want to check so this sweet. clothes out. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think again, going back to the human element, I don't know if intuitively you understood that starting a podcast was going to be so helpful, but. Oh, I did not. I started a podcast because I really like podcasts. Mm-hmm. I really like podcasts. I had been a guest on a couple of shows. It's like similar to this. I'm having the most fun now talking to you. Um, I have, and I knew that I would have a ton of fun doing it. Um, Not very many people were doing it. And I kind of just felt like, it would be fun to do. And mm-hmm. also there was a, another part of it at the time I was kind of like observing influencer culture a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult for me to get my clothes um, into the right hands to like be like a, in a typical fashion influencer kind of way for whatever reason, they were just not so interested in working with me. Um, or I just didn't have the budget to pay them the amounts of money that would make them. Was, interested it, in- was it the size stigma situation also related to that? Partly. It was also just because I don't do super trendy things and influencers oh. kind of rely on trends and things that change very quickly. Uh-huh. And because I, because I do kind of more classic timeless pieces, it just became that much more difficult, uh, for, for a certain type of person to, um, uh, to promote the clothes and the way that they work or just their, uh, or just their model was based on like they charge per post per story per whatever. And it would, and it's a lot of money and I just didn't right. have that money. However, most people like to talk about themselves. So I kind of figured that if I started a podcast and if it was a guest based podcast where people came on and shared their story, a, I would have the opportunity to talk with all these women doing fantastic things. And also their audiences would want to come and listen to them on my podcast. And then their audiences could find out about me. That was also part of it. And it wasn't difficult to get guests because everybody likes talking about themselves. 
I haven't met a person who doesn't like talking about themselves. And the topic is always themselves. So that was really easy um, to, you know, it was, it was kind of like an easy in, like a back door um, for more people to find out about me. And I also knew that I would be really good at it. I'm really good at interviewing. Um, I'm really, I'm just, it's, again, it's just something that I am inherently just very good at. And so I figured that if I did it consistently enough, it would develop an audience of its own and be impactful is the um among the top rated fashion and beauty podcasts on apple podcasts right now and um and it is a super successful show um and it has been really fun to do oh my gosh rifki you're amazing i have two more questions before i let you go um one question is your money mindset you know it for many business owners, it kind of really comes up um, and they have to work through it. Again, when we talked about pricing and all these things, it seems like you have a very solid, fresh money mindset. Anything there that you felt like, no, there were some kinks along the way that I had to work through or anything you felt like, you know, you, you learned from home and you had to let go of as a business owner or or I learned from home and it served me right, you know? Um Yeah, I mean... I think that, well, what we spoke before about pricing, that was definitely a kink that I needed to work through. This, mm-hmm. um, this idea of not apologizing for the price mm-hmm. because at the time, and I still, I believe it even more strongly now, but I knew it then that it was worth what I was charging. It was probably worth even more than I was charging. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was definitely something that, you know, that I had to kind of work through. Um, I would say also something that was, that took me a minute at the beginning, especially I didn't grow up with any kind of allowance or any kind of um like budget Ability to or, manage money. Right, right. Right. Or anything like that. And that's not, that's that, that was just not my parents ethos. They felt like we should not worry about anything. And like, if we needed something that sometimes they would say yes, sometimes they would say no, but like, it wasn't, it wasn't like my responsibility to, to kind of mm-hmm. manage money. Um, And that definitely took me a minute when I started the business, when I started the business, that was the first time that I was in charge of like, okay, I have this much money to spend and I need to accomplish these things. And how am I going to go about doing that and everything? Um, and that definitely, that was a, a little bit more of a trial and error process. It was, and it was I have to keep money math. in the business to keep this thing going too. Uh, inconveniently enough, you do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So there, there was definitely some working out to be done there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, I would say pricing was probably the biggest thing that I had to work through. Yeah. Yeah. Rifki, I'm going to ask you um, what I do at every show. You may have heard me do this. I'll give you a few open-ended statements and you'll finish them with the first thing that comes to mind. How about that? I love oh. these. All right. Okay. When I give my sir or tzedakah, I like to give to people who are close to me, institutions mm. that are close to me. Um, right. We, you know, my husband and I give a lot to um, like the schools that we grew up in that, you know, the, the yeshivos that um, that we have family members that, that operate, um, the, you know, things, things like that, or causes that like we know, that we know personally. Very cool. Very cool. I'd like to make more money because it gives me more time. Oh, money is time. I really, I really feel that very strongly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I necessarily feel like I have to make money. Um, but I do feel like time is, the the difference the difference between you know times when I'm very flush and times when I'm when I'm not is that you know that I can outsource let's say some graphic design during during sometimes and that frees me up to do other things right. or you know I can outsource 
something, you know, on a project by project basis and allow me to focus more on design. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to me, money is, is, and it, it applies in your personal life too, right? Of like course, when you're you more can buy certain conveniences, right? So like the purchase your time elsewhere. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, it, it's interesting because it goes back to this, your superpower. You said your superpower is time management. Look and at I you. have a lot of stuff I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Look, I can tell. And you're only 21, 29. I, I feel like if God gives me the strength to continue doing this podcast for many, many years to come, you're going to be visiting me time and time again. There's going to be tons of stuff we're going to be diving into. It's like, okay, what's Ricky? To. What's Ricky? It's going <laughs> up to now. Come on over. Let's hear. <laughs> and it would be my pleasure. Uh, something I wish I'd learn about growing money up. Something I wish I'd learn about money growing up is. I don't know. See, you would think I would have, I would have thought about this because I know that you asked these questions. Um, look, it, it sounds to me that you were raised uh, in a pretty healthy environment when it comes generally. to that. Yeah. Uh, no, not very many traumatic childhood memories to go through. Um, something that I would have, that I wish I would have learned about money growing up. I would say probably more about the budgeting side, more mm-hmm. about like if, if I, I think that if I would have had more, um, more control over like, like an allowance or, or something like that, then I think that it would have made kind of my transition into adulting a little bit mm-hmm. easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those practical skills. You're right. Look, sometimes, you know, it's, it's just, you just have to do it like anything in life. You right. just have to do it and have the money to manage and make those trade-offs and those decisions. And yeah. Right. All right. Money, spiritual or physical? Physical. Mm. Highly. Highly physical, but mm-hmm. you also need to have your physical things in like in order before you can even think about being spiritual. So for me, it's, it's definitely, uh, I don't, I don't really think of money as something that like furthers spiritual goals. Mm-hmm. Um, but it lets me get things, gets, it, it lets me get things in order so that I can then, you know, kind of focus on those spiritual things. I should say that in general, I'm not a very spiritual person. So. <laughs> But no, I'm really not. Um, like I'm really not touchy feely. I'm really not like it's uh, yeah, it's it, the the heebie-jeebie stuff is just not for me. Um, it's but so yeah, interesting because as you're telling me your story at the beginning, um, two things twice it stood out in my mind. First, at the beginning, as a young girl, like looking to at the runway and this and that, um, and then working at this at this internship where people didn't have your same value system, your same lifestyle. And I remember I wrote here on my notes, strength of character, like not everybody can be immersed or make expose themselves to a, a lifestyle that is so contrary to theirs. And at an early age, I mean, you were doing like, all of this. I don't really see that as a spiritual be, thing though. Because no, no, again, no, but I'm, I'm saying something I noticed about you Um, and be so, strong and like not, not it, i don't know you know I, i'm, I'm I don't know, it, honestly I don't... it's possible i mean thank you for the compliment i appreciate it very much and also it wasn't really very hard because to get oh uh, uh, like using that specific example right mm-hmm. to get those kinds of jobs are really hard they don't pay very much and they're not like they in order to 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 really be successful in that career, you need to be really, really, really committed. And I just couldn't see myself doing that. Like I just wasn't interested enough in the like in, in the wider fashion industry to do right. that. So instead I did it by myself in my out of mm-hmm. my parents' house. Like yeah, that, you know, but it wasn't I wouldn't necessarily see it as a character thing. It was really just a practical thing. 
Like, I don't want to work this hard for someone else. No, come on. You're not giving yourself enough credit. You're not giving yourself the, the fact that you, that you could see all these things that weren't modest around you and, and you still were so proud of who you are and how you dress and you're going to continue but that life. I don't lifestyle. even look at it that way. I really don't look Good at it you. that way. Good for I, you. I really don't look at it that way just because it wasn't like, like, oh, this is like Gashmia Santoma and I'm not going to touch that. Like it wasn't at all like that. It was just, it was, it was kind of like I was recently. I was recent. It was on my podcast actually, where someone was saying that, like, I think it was even you that you don't you didn't want I, your boss's job. Yeah, it was me. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, when you when you were recently on my show, you were saying that you know you're in this job and you realized that you didn't want your boss's job when you were in investment banking, and it was a, it was a similar kind of experience where I was just like, okay, the next job that I would have would be hers. I don't want her life. I don't want her job. Right. And then after right. that would be her job. No, don't right. want the, I don't want his life. Like I just looked around and I was like, I just don't want these jobs. It right. Was, it was very practical in that way. It wasn't yeah. really. Um, yeah. And I yeah. think also there's an element of, I was just curious to learn like, and see how can I make that fit into my value system? It wasn't like I was looking to change my value system. Right. You know, it's like, right. I know who I am. That's what I'm talking about. It was very much, I know who I am and where I'm going and I'm just fascinated by the design element and the textures and the textiles and the shape and how could I bring it into my world? Um, right. Yeah. 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 I'll take that. Okay. So something I splurge on unapologetically is uh, takeout. Oh, really? Takeout. Yeah. Takeout that's food. You, see, that's because you live in New York. You can do that. I. That's I true. That's yeah. true. Um. Yes. Unap- I will. If there is anything that keeps me out of the kitchen, I will do it. Um. Mm-hmm. I. I despise cooking. Mm. I I hate that supper needs to happen every single night. Well, I hate that. World. Oh, I I hate it so very much. Um, and anything that that like I when my husband and I were dating very early on, second yeah. or third date maybe, I said to him, I was like, by the way, if you are looking for someone who's gonna like have dinner on the table five p.m. every day, <laughs> we should stop this now. So I'm telling you right now, not going to happen. Um. And he was like, yeah, I feel like I could make that work. Like, it, it just wasn't important to him. Good thing, too, because I wasn't kidding. And yeah, no, takeout, um, takeout or like pre-made, ro- like, like pre, like stuff that you can warm up quickly. Again, at home. I do cook occasionally. Um, occasionally. <laughs> I cook when I need to, you know, um, I, I, I cook when I need to and, you know, and all of that. But if, you know, we're having pizza for supper tonight, I can tell you that now at noon that we're having pizza for supper tonight and I'm. I'm absolutely totally fine with that because i'll tell you what it is it's not it's my sanity it's not just mm-hmm. the thing that you're splurging on yes is the food and is you know however much it it costs for the takeout or the eating out mm-hmm. or whatever but what you're really buying is your sanity because mm-hmm. first of all like i work full-time i don't have to when am i making supper when is that happening everyone gets home at five o'clock and is starving mm-hmm. and like even boiling a pot of noodles sometimes is <laughs> outside of certain family member timelines you know and not to say that we have a lot of noodles too everybody loves noodles but um but it's you know it's it's you're buying the sanity of mm-hmm. like this is you know this yeah. is this is what also we do. also because I think you enjoy what you do, so you like to spend time doing that. <laughs> Same thing right. here. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's two, and you haven't cooked lunch or dinner. Are you sure about that? I'm like, yep. Yeah. It's just like I'll figure it out. <laughs> right, exactly. It's fine. And and by the way, if we end up having like I don't know cereal or just like something very low key or scrambled eggs or something like that for supper, that's fine. Other members of my family are totally okay with that, so. 
it's, you know, I think that also has to do with the fact that I'm in the toddler stage and they, yeah, uh, it, would, it gets harder. It gets, they hard. would love to I'll eat that. You. So I, I don't know how that would change. Okay. Um, it's you know, okay. as we'll, we'll talk then we'll talk. I'm the exact same type. The problem, I have two problems. Number one, I happen to be a good, I, I don't know why I happen to cook good food. So my family actually likes my food. Oh, unfortunately. See that, see, that's where you went wrong. You yeah, I went wrong. Know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They discovered that my food tastes good. I don't uh, enjoy making it. I so don't I've enjoy the problem. process. They like my food. And number two, I happen to not like restaurant food. So even if I lived in a place uh, like New York, I like homemade food. So I'm just going to get a personal chef one day. That's the goal, people. By the way, if I had, a, if I, if, if like there was only room in my budget for a personal chef and it meant that I couldn't have a cleaning lady, I would do personal chef. If I had to choose between those two, I absolutely would do personal chef. You know, you're making, I, I have to think about that. I don't wash the dishes. I, see, I don't mind washing dishes and I'll tell Me you either. what. I put Me them podcasted. Yes. I put it in okay. headphones. I'm listening to a podcast. It's great. It's fantastic. Yes. We're on yeah. to something. All right. Drifty, spender or saver? Saver. Oh, were you always like that? Um, for the most part, sort of, um, I wouldn't, I would say that I, I definitely veered more towards saving unless I think that it's something like, uh, I, I, mm, I'm kind of in the middle of the road on this, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I would say that like, if we're on an equilibrium, I'm like slight balance towards, towards saving, saving. but I'm, but I also, again, like I'll buy the takeout for my sanity. You know, I'm not going to do things (laughs) at the expense of that. Um, but I would say that I, that I, I tilt a little bit towards saver. All right. Today, I'm most grateful for my family. Oh, They're the beautiful. best. Yeah. Baruch Hashem. And I'm Rifki Itzkowitz. And I believe Jewish money matters because. Oh, Jewish money matters because it's important for Jewish people to be able to support themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really important, like, especially with everything that we as a nation have been through, the ability to be financially independent, to properly manage your money and, you know, and, and, and generate your own money, whether that's through a business or through a career or, or something like that. All of that is, is really important because of the autonomy that it gives us. Yeah. Yeah. Spoken like an entrepreneur, my dear. There you go. Rifki Itzkowitz has been so fun, so informative. I learned so much. I appreciate all the insights, the journey. Fabulous. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thanks to Rifki Itzkowitz for stopping by. You can find her at impactfashionnyc.com or on Instagram at impact.fashion.nyc. And of course, you can find her weekly on our podcast, Be Impactful, wherever you're listening to this show. And be sure to go check it out because I was there only last week and it was a good one, y'all. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rating and I will be sure to pick a reviewer and give them a 20-minute session with me. This Friday, you'll finally get the answers to all your Israel-related questions. Anyone in the audience who's made Aliyah or is thinking of making Aliyah, that episode is for you. Stay tuned. I'll see you here Friday.